Wiren is DeFi's first self-building project on Ethereum, focused on producing products for those who are interested in earning yield in DeFi. Wiren's various products are all built to suit each individual investor's preferred level of risk, from various vault strategies that leverage DeFi tokens to the safer earn system which relies on stable coins. Vaults are aggressive yield farming robots, each with a unique strategy that is designed to maximize the yield of the deposited asset. Wiren employs some of the most informed developers in DeFi to keep the vault strategies updated with the various yield farming opportunities on Ethereum. For customers who are more risk adverse, the Wiren's Earn product may be for you. Earn is a yield aware dynamic money market that automatically seeks the best interest rates across the various DeFi protocols and regularly migrates your deposited stable coins between the DeFi protocols that are returning the best yield at the present moment. Wiren is a system that is just a little over four months old, so things are still very much an experiment. However, this hasn't stopped people from depositing over $700 million worth of assets into the Wiren system in order to find yield on Ethereum. Perhaps the people that deposited all this money were we're tired of constantly making daily transactions to follow the best DeFi interest rates, and maybe the gas fees that they were paying ended up eating too much into their profits. With Wiren, it doesn't remove the risk of these various protocols that it leverages, but it does remove the overhead of constantly trying to make sure you're finding the best yield, and also so that you don't have to pay for gas to switch up your assets. Check out the products that Wiren has to offer at yearn.finance. That's Y-E-A-R-N.finance which they also have a nice statistics page to see what other people are doing. Bankless Nation, do you want to go fully bankless, but in the real world, Monolith is the DeFi account that you need. It wraps your ETH address in a bankless Visa card, and it does so much more. It closes the loop from fiat to DeFi. So you can onboard fiat to DAI on Monolith with zero fees. Then you can convert that DAI to ADAI, which is an interest-bearing savings account. Again zero fees and then you can spend that interest in the real world on a visa card so you can finally buy your cup of coffee with interest earned in DeFi. guys this is magic this is the closest thing to the holy grail crypto card and monolith gives you all of it you need to download the app at monolith.xyz to get your bankless visa card it's optimized for european listeners they'll be coming to the u.s soon and when you get that visa card the monolith card tweet about it when you do i love seeing people unpackaging their beautiful bankless visa cards and makes me realize that the revolution is here search monolith in the app store all right welcome bankless nation to another ama this is an ask me anything we've got danny ryan here whom we're going to introduce in a second quick logistics here's how this works you can view live on youtube it's broadcasting now you can ask your questions on youtube if you're a bankless member you get prioritized uh questions in the bankless discord so make sure you start pumping your questions for danny we're going to be talking about eth2 we're going to try to wrap this up in about an hour and i will interrupt at various points and, and let you know how much time remaining we have, this is a super important ask me anything because of the timing. ETH2 is coming. It really is, despite what they say on Twitter. We just had Vitalik on the podcast to talk about the why of Ethereum. Now we wanna do this ask me anything with Danny Ryan to talk about the what, the how, 
maybe even the when, we'll see. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to Danny Ryan, who is an ETH2 researcher, a coordinator of clients, a herder of cats. He is the guy to ask about ETH2 progress. Danny, how you doing, man? Great. Thanks for having me. Excited awesome. to be here. Okay. Let's, let's start here. Uh, you know, we, we get dipped on the first question. On a scale of one to 10, how excited are you about ETH2 right now? One to 10. <laughs> Um, I mean, definitely 10. Um, I've been working on this for years. Um, it, I can't believe that is true. But um, even before ETH2 kind of took its current form, which it's been in that form for over a couple of years, I was working on um, proof of stake stuff uh, in a different form. And so um, I am anxious and excited to get this thing out. I, I actually want to, I want to tell you a little, a little story. So in Japan, they have these things called Darumas. And these little dolls and you draw in one eye and you essentially, you make a wish or you make like a goal. And then when you're completed, you, you color in the other eye. And it, it's like a, it, it's a blind Buddha that like achieves enlightenment or something. Um, and you, <clears throat> so I, I have this little white one, little white Daruma, and I colored in one eye in the beginning of 2018. Cause I was like, I'm going to ship Casper. Like we're going to ship it this year. It's the white Daruma. It's like a little ghost. Um, and this thing, it, it usually sits right there, but it's not there right now. Um, it, it haunts me, right? It sits there and it looks at me and has one eye and it had to shift it when we shifted to the ETH2 and sharding and all, everything combined um, And so I'm, I'm very excited to take this little Daruma and give it its final little eye and wow. then you burn it. So that's going to be fun too. Fully formed. And that will achieve enlightenment is what you're saying. Is that for yourself or is that for all Ethereans? Uh, yeah. You, anyone can share in the enlightenment. I, I will gladly share. <laughs> Danny, you had a really fantastic talk at the ETH online summit uh, not too long ago where you talked about how the whole ETH one into ETH two transition migration is a, is a misnomer. And I thought that was a really fantastic perspective that I, I wished more people had. So I kind of want to give you the opportunity to kind of uh, pitch to us why, why is it not a transition? Why is it not a mi migration? And what is it really? And, and how should we really think about this thing? Right. So check out this talk. Um, it gets a little, it's like not incredibly technical, but like gets into more of the structures of these things. Um, but we talk about this thing called ETH1. We talk about this thing called ETH2 all the time. Um, and what we think of as ETH1 is like Ethereum as is today. And what we think of as ETH2 is like this thing that we're trying to build, which has proof of stake and sharding and scalability, all this fun stuff. Um, and I claim that um, we made a mistake in the naming and that it's a misnomer and it implies this like sequentiality of the systems meaning like you know we're going from windows 98 to windows 2000 and it's like this whole new thing or we're going from um <clears throat> like a car or a bike to a car or a car to an airplane whereas like really it's 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 a more um it's more we're talking about layers of the, of the system um so what when we think about eth1 uh all of the like complexity like you have this little this tiny little proof of work thing it's like from a software perspective, relatively simple. All the complexity of ETH1, all of the hard work that's gone in for the past five years to iterate and upgrade and make this thing like what it is, is, is in this like what, what I call the user layer. It's in execution, it's in transaction management, it's in state, uh, it's in state sync. And all these things that like make the user layer of Ethereum awesome. And, and also a lot of things that make Ethereum hard. Where this proof of work module is just kind of state stable. What ETH2 is, is really, taking this like tiny little proof of work thing that's like the brain of the system and saying, can we reimagine, can we redesign the brain of the system to be more secure, uh, 
more decentralized and more scalable. Um, and that's what, you know, when we're talking about the ETH2 project, it's really, we want to replace the brains of the system uh, with something more sophisticated rather than replacing like the guts of the system. Like the, it, it's still the same system. Um, and so what we consider ETH1, that state, that, that user layer um, is to exist kind of with this new brain, what we call E2. Um, and so there's probably some better terms to use there. Uh, maybe we'll just call it Serenity, the upgrade of Ethereum's core consensus, um, as it probably should have been called the entire time. But uh, so that's, that's a little bit of that. Check out the talk. Um, it's something that's important to me because uh, it makes it hard to communicate about these things if we can't talk about them. Um, and so check it out. Maybe we can all begin to talk about the separation of layers in a more um, organized way. So just to kind of summarize that and make sure I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the same page, uh, with Ethereum, there is the stuff that we do, right? The, the DeFi, yield farming, Uniswap, any, anything that's a contract, right? Tokens, transfers, that's the stuff that we do. And then there's the uh, infrastructure that supports that, right? And so mm -hmm. the stuff that we do isn't changing. That's, going, that's coming along with almost no changes. It's the right. how how the machine of Ethereum comes to consensus around the stuff that we do that is uh, being like swapped out. And so right. the, the way I've explained this to a friend of mine is kind of like the uh, the Indiana Jones of the like taking the idol and the, the sandbag and swapping the sandbag on for the golden idol. And then at the same time, is that an accurate like illustration or maybe is that <laughs> um, did that lose some nuance? That's probably reasonable. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you two others that like, I think are kind of reasonable as well. Um, Joe Lubin actually said this in a talk. I don't, there's been like this, this whole COVID online thing is like all blur. So I have no idea what it was or when it was, but Joe Lubin um, was uh, in, in some sort of like online thing said <clears throat> it's, it's like, uh, and I actually, I think mistakenly used this analogy earlier, but um, it's like, a modern operating system. You upgrade your modern operating system. What happens? Usually, if you choose to, like it feels very similar. Like you brought your files, you brought your programs, you brought everything, and it, like it generally works. But maybe you have like some upgraded hardware. Maybe you have some better security features, and maybe you can like, if you're a developer, you can like get in and do some like new cool things. Um, and maybe you have a bigger hard drive, but. It, you're still working on what seems like the same computer. Your keyboard might click louder because you're into that. Um, but, you know, so that, that's one way you can think about it is like the user layer, your user experience can be very similar, but if you choose to, it can be enhanced over time. Um, and then another one is, and I don't love this, but it's because it's like weird, like war analogy, but imagine like Ethereum is like some fighter pilot plane thing, jet, a jet uh, flying around. It's doing awesome stuff. Um, and then like what we're doing is like essentially preparing the aircraft carrier and it lands. And like, now we have like a bunch of other jets that are like all managed under the same system. Um, both of those kind of suck, but you know, different ways to think about it. I'm well, still, I... I'm still working on the memes and the analogies, but maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, fantastic. Yeah. I, and we'll add the uh, Indiana Jones one to the roster there, David. N nice one there. Um, all right, so can we talk up for a minute, because I think this is a huge question in the Ethereum and in the Bankless community about the state of the testnets. So for people who have not caught up, right, I guess maybe zooming out, what we're talking about, the, the next thing that's coming is uh, ETH2 or Serenity um, phase zero, right? Uh, and then we've had this series of testnets to get to a mainnet phase zero. Can you talk about, I guess, phase zero and the, the feature set of it? 
and then the state of the most recent test nets that have happened and kind of where we are now. Right. So what we're doing right now is we're bootstrapping the new consensus for Ethereum. We're bootstrapping this proof of stake consensus. And that that's called phase zero. Um, to be honest, like I think these the terms, these phases are like nice for technical discussions, uh, but I don't think they like, are incredibly meaningful for the community. So I'm even just trying to talk about them differently. Um, <clears throat> so what we're doing uh, at the end of this year is we are bootstrapping the new consensus mechanism. Uh, Ethereum, I don't, is like a $50 billion blockchain. I don't know, it depends on the day, it depends on the hour, it depends on the minute. Um, That's about right. But high value, a lot of activity, a lot going on. Um, and it has, it has this like, this proof of work brain, it's relatively simple and it works. Um, so the, to do this in a sane and conservative fashion, uh, the consensus, the new consensus mechanism, which will ultimately drive Ethereum in the future, uh, is to be bootstrapped in parallel. So essentially, uh, we're not going to disrupt this thing that we call ETH1, the current Ethereum chain. Uh, instead, we're going to allow people to, um, stake and move real economic value into this parallel system, um, which is that proof of stake mechanism, which is called the beacon chain, which is to be the brains of uh, Ethereum in the future um, and to bootstrap it in production, um, unaffecting the initial system uh, to kind of get everything right, to get stability, to get the software in, in production, uh, to test the economics uh, in, in real world conditions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that's what we're doing at the end of the year is a bootstrapping phase for the new consensus mechanism. Um, if you're doing like the operating system analysis, we're like, you know, putting the operating system in, in beta and letting people test it and like they're getting early rewards for, I don't know, that's not a, that's not a good, <laughs> but um, so bootstrapping phase, that's like, we're doing this in production we're putting proof of stake in production to bootstrap it to then take control of Ethereum in the future. Um, we throughout this year um, and to a certain extent last year uh, on single clients uh, have been iterating on test nuts. Um, I don't know how many there have been. There have probably been like three or four public multi-client test nets. Um, I say multi-client because there are many implementations of this protocol, um, which y'all are probably all aware of. Um, <clears throat> so we have... Uh, Madasha, Madaya, Madala, whatever you want to call it. It is a testnet. Um, it has about 100,000 validators. Uh, each validator is a 32 instance. Um, and there's more than 1,000 nodes. There's kind of a distinction between validators and nodes. We can get into that later if you're interested. Um, but about 1,000 nodes on this network. It is community-driven um, and community-controlled, meaning like the EF and client teams control probably less than 5% of the stake on this thing. Um, and so it's it's broadly run by the community. Um, it is not an incentivized test net, meaning that um, the incentive to be on it is there's no additional monetary incentive. It, the incentive to be on it is to uh, test out your software and kind of like show that this thing works uh, and get your system hardened and security and, and, and just kind of understand things before you move into mainnet. Um, there's been some awesome things that have happened with Dasha, uh, you know, some initial stability, some craziness in terms of, uh, instabilities and, and some, uh, bugs and hardening that happen. And then, um, a long stretch of stability. Recently, we've seen, um, about 50% of stake, um, leave, 
I think a lot of people are at the point where like, I'm ready for mainnet. Uh, I don't really, you know, if I'm running on a cloud box, like I don't really feel like paying for it. If I have it at home, like, you know, screw it. I unplugged it from the wall. I don't, I don't know all the motives there, but um, plenty of people have turned their nodes off. So Madasha is actually in this, um, this time of no finality. You need two thirds on the network uh, to finalize. And so it's in this like somewhat stressful state where the chain's being still being built, but things aren't being uh, finalized. And so you can't like aggressively as prune and, and things like that. So um, what we're experiencing with Madasha is like actually what I would love to see, which is like one of the more stressful environments, you know, 100,000 validator testnet um, in a pretty stressful environment. And we're seeing some awesome PRs and releases uh, if you follow the client development, um, you know, on better pruning strategies in this this time of finality. It's highlighted, you know, a couple of, um, I think, uh, I, I noticed on, on Lighthouse, uh, Proto and I were looking at something and noticed that like the attestation pool was like, you know, had 400,000 attestations in it, which doesn't make any sense. But, uh, you know, which is, uh, could lead to memory spikes and stuff. So um, point being is Madasha still exists. Uh, Madasha is in this like very stressful state and um, gives us a chance to harden clients and, and things before uh, we go to mainnet. Uh, additionally, we've had these like testnet dress rehearsals recently, uh, which is one of the one of the more difficult parts of this process is really like that initial bootstrapping. It's the making the Genesis deposits and kind of coordinating all the clients at the same time uh, to kick off Genesis. And so we've had a couple of these like testnet dress rehearsals. Uh, the last one went really well. Um, and so we're kind of in the final preparations for mainnet uh, because of these positive signals from test nets and at the same time, uh, tying up various loose ends, um, which we can get into. That's the status that I, I don't know. It says that, that cover the test nets. No, that, that's super good. That's fantastic. And, and one of the things you mentioned is how these test nets are not incentivized. When we call like Bitcoin and Ethereum, we call these things like crypto economic systems, or at least that's what Vitalik calls them. And that's really the only name that I can really think of that really gets on to what these things are, crypto economic systems. But right now, what these test nets are, are just crypto systems because they don't have the economics built into it. So with to the best of your ability, Danny, can you kind right. of tell us what, how, how have things gone differently because of the lack of incentivization? And maybe how do you <clears> expect <throat> things to change when phase zero rolls out, which is like, quote unquote, an incentivized test net that right. is fully crypto economic? There's a few things going on here. So one, like, First and foremost, you bootstrap it off of Gorley instead of mainnet ETH. Uh, if you ask a Gorley whale, they'll give you you know ten thousand ETH, no problem. Um, and so, the ability to kind of come in and, and largely affect these systems to like be a large player in the in the testnet uh, is pretty easy. Um, and because of that, uh, people that don't necessarily like. <clears throat> I don't have much care other than like my personal want to understand and, and participate in the system uh, to like keep the value that I've participated in uh, running smoothly. So <clears throat> that's that's definitely one of the differences. Another difference is that we've seen and why we did a couple of these testnet dress rehearsals is that um, like in Madasha, we had initial instability during the first like 40 epochs or something and epochs like six and a half minutes. Um, and Primarily, the reason was that pe some people that chose to be whales in this testnet uh, didn't turn their nodes on, right? Uh, I won't say, I won't, I won't name names, uh, but you know, somebody that was like ten percent stake was like, "Oh shit, I thought Genesis was an hour later," and like that can happen in mainnet, but like, I think you're probably gonna check, double check, triple check. Uh, it costs you money. Time also, like, 
you can turn your note on two days before Genesis. I don't know why your note wasn't on, <laughs> you know. So anyway, um, so that kind of stuff happens. And that's why we did a couple of the dress rehearsals to really like get, uh, get a good Genesis going. Um, and then otherwise, like if I'm running on a, a mainnet node, um, I have real money at stake. And not only can I make money, but I can lose money. Um, and so if I don't have my validator, I don't have my node running optimally connected to the internet, um, you know, if, if a bug arises in my client, I'm going to like dig in and, and like figure out, is there a new release? Should I switch clients? Like I'm going to be making, I'm going to be pressured <laughs> due to the, uh, the loss of capital um, and my lack of ability to gain capital uh, to, to fix things. And so <clears throat> what we've seen is, um, I mean, sometimes there are client errors. Uh, there are fewer and fewer, but uh, you know, if, if, 10% of the network goes off because of client error. People are like slow to fix it. Um, and when people don't want to participate anymore, a lot of people are just like turning their machines off, uh, which if I were on mainnet, I wouldn't do, I would exit, right? Like if I'm like sick of this, like this is not for me, I'm going to exit. I'm going to take myself out of uh, participation. And so we see a lot of not quite uh, rational activity if, if this stuff actually had value. Um, and that's, one of the reasons to go to mainnet and to bootstrap this thing um, with real production value is to like see how the economics work in production. So do you think when this is deployed to mainnet, Danny, some some people have called this like uh, an incentivized testnet almost because, you know, there still could right. be some issues post mainnet. Do you, do you agree with that lens? So I understand that framing. That's not really my framing. Um, I think the major difference is between an incentivized testnet and what we're doing is that um, the intent of going to mainnet here is that it is continuously, although it will be upgraded and change in form, uh, that chain does become mainnet. That chain does become the history. Whereas an incentivized testnet, I would say, um, has no intention to ultimately morph into what mainnet is. Um, and so it is, it is early. Um, there's a little bit less, there's, real capital at stake. There's less at stake as in there's probably less surface area to attack at the beginning and maybe less incentive for an attacker to come in. Um, and so it does allow us to have training wheels on to a certain extent. Um, transfers aren't enabled at the beginning, which like in the event of catastrophe would allow us, um, would allow the community uh, to make maybe hard decisions on, on reverts and things like that. Uh, but so there, you know, Training, it's like training wheels mainnet rather than um, incentivized testnet, in my opinion. I know that others call it an incentivized testnet. I think there's validity to that claim, but I think there's definitely a difference between a mainnet, uh, you know, an early mainnet that's going to evolve into the full thing versus like a testnet that like is incentivized and ultimately won't turn into the, the mainnet. Yeah, I got it. All right. So we, so we went through all the testnets. I think the big question on everyone's mind is what's next? What's left to do here? Correct. Um, I mean, plain and simple, the, the main thing to do is to release the version one of the specs, uh, the community to choose a deposit contract mainnet canonical address um, and a Genesis date. Um, there are a couple of reasons that uh, myself and client teams have not done that final release of specs that would include what we would uh, uh, call a canonical address and date. Um, and the primary being, and I haven't talked about this yet, um, I've been meaning to put it down in paper in a blog post. Um, I've also just kind of been monitoring the situation. Uh, but the primary being, there's this crypto library, it's called BLST, Blast, 
Um, it's built by Supernational. It was um, created actually this year, and it is a highly optimized um, BLS crypto library. And it's awesome. You know, like 2x gains on the fastest thing, and it's actually easier to read and reason about. Um, and there's like ongoing formal verification of it. Um, this library is critical um, to creating keys, uh, signing messages, uh, and critical in early phases in that if you use this library to generate your keys, they need to be secure. If they use it to generate your wallets, they need to have like tightened uh, good randomness and stuff. Um, and if you're actually signing your deposits, which has a signature associated with it, it needs to be correct. Um, and so this library is currently under audit. Um, it is also under uh, ongoing formal verification, which has some initial results. That stuff's probably not going to be ready until Q1, uh, but it is under uh, security audit with NCC. Um, it's about two weeks in, and we have another about two weeks of this audit to go. Um, given that how critical this library is, and given that if there is a fundamental error in this library, we could really fuck some shit up uh, in terms of Genesis deposits. Um, that is the blocker. There are a number of other things going on. Uh, clearly, clients are clients are hardening. Uh, clients are tying up loose ends. Um, there's been a lot of like active engagement on Madasha with uh, some of the things that users are seeing in terms of resource consumption and stuff. Um, so that's ongoing. Uh, there are some ongoing client audits and things, um, and there are some loose ends being tied up around like user experience on the launch pad and and other various tooling around deposits. Um, but those things are all going to happen and are happening kind of in parallel. Uh, but the, the, the big blocker um, on kind of finalizing the last little bits is this audit. One of the tools I've started to use recently is Zapper. For those of you that were a part of the 2017 bull market, it was characterized by just opening up Blockfolio and refreshing it over and over and over again. And also anytime you ever made a trade, you would have to go into Blockfolio and manually input that trade information to make sure that your portfolio that you think that you have matches what you actually have. With Zapper, you don't have to do any of that anymore because all you have to do with Zapper is input your Ethereum addresses and then Zapper will give you a really elegant report as to where all your money is. So there will never ever be any disconnect between the money that you think that you have and the money that Zapper reports to you. Zapper looks directly on chain and gives you a nice portfolio summary of all your assets and how many assets and your, all of your debt and all of your lending positions, all of your positions all at once. So there's no more editing your portfolio because Zapper just does it for you. One thing that I thought was really useful about Zappers was when I plugged my wallets in, I found that I had submitted liquidity to Uniswap forever ago, and without Zapper, I would have probably lost that forever because Zapper knows where your money is better than you do. It's also the gateway to investing your money into this ever-expanding list of available DeFi platforms like Curve, Balancer, Uniswap, Yearn. In the bankless nation, there is this growing number of money Legos and keeping track of them all is just super overwhelming, which is why you could just go to Zapper and Zapper will, will solve the problem of there just being too many money Legos to choose from. So check them out at zapper.fi, enter your Ethereum addresses and check out your portfolio and see if there's anything that you missed is a bankless bank account. But here's the problem. It doesn't have a human readable name. It's represented by this long hexadecimal string that no one can read. Unstoppable Domains has the solution to that problem. It provides a domain name for your Ethereum address. So instead of telling someone to send you funds to 0x, E3, BA, blah, 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 
you can tell them to send funds to yourname.crypto, a domain name for your Ethereum address. At unstoppabledomains.com, you can search for blockchain domains like this and find tools to easily launch websites on decentralized web technology like IPFS. You can even have Unstoppable Domains help you manage your .crypto or .eth or even .zil domain name addresses at their Unstoppable Domains manager. Websites have domain names, .com, .org. Your bankless bank account on Ethereum should have a domain name too. So go to unstoppabledomains.com, register a domain name for your Ethereum address now. Unstoppabledomains.com. So, Danny, there's a few questions with regards to the canonical deposit address. Uh, how how do you foresee people figuring out uh, which one is the canonical address, and why why don't we just have a clear and cut answer as this is the address? Um, I mean, for one, uh, who can dictate such a thing? Um, this is likely going to be signaled from uh, many different angles from uh, from the community kind of all at once. Uh, I think that client teams, EF, um, large community um, entities that have stake stakeholders uh, in the community um, are planning on kind of coalescing on a single deposit contract um, and signaling that all at once um, to... Um, one kind of solidify like the community has chosen this, uh, but two to also um, publish this information mm -hmm. simultaneously, kind of all over the web, and it can't simultaneously a campaign that says trip check, double check, triple check this before you send any uh, any any money to it, uh, because at the end of the day, the bootstrapping of uh, the Serenity, the ETH2 consensus, the Beacon Chain, um, it happens with no changes to ETH1. And so this bootstrapping mechanism, like the gateway to enter into this consensus mechanism is a contract on ETH1. Um, and so I can deploy the bytecode, you can deploy the bytecode, anyone can deploy the bytecode. And we can verify that all of these are like the bytecode that we all intended to use. But if we don't all choose the same one, um, you know, there could be issues with loss of funds and other things. And I think maybe even more concerningly, um, I can take that bytecode and modify it and maybe put some sort of uh, secret withdrawals in there. Obviously, if you're verifying the bytecode, um, you couldn't create like a phishing contract, but you could create like a contract people are just wasting money. Uh, but I'm definitely like, we're all kind of concerned about phishing. And and so we, we do want to make sure that there's like a, a good community push to kind of like coalesce very clearly on this. Um, you know, I, I think this information will end up in that EIP that I wrote up. Wrote up. It'll end up in the V10 specs on the spec repo. Um, it'll end up in many blog posts. Um, hopefully, like block explorers and different things will also all be kind of publishing and, and giving names and, and access to this information. I think that's uh, <clears throat> that's pretty interesting. That for just a brief moment, uh, Ethereum really em is emphasized by the social layer rather than the code layer. Uh, when it comes to like uh, determining which is the quote unquote real deposit contract. I think that's a, a right. pretty, pretty interesting feature. And we, you know, anytime there's a hard fork, um, it, it's not, there's maybe not a lot of risk in those, but like that, that's a point in which the social layer of Ethereum goes, yes, we're doing this. Right. And like, if it's adding like a BLS precompile and it's adding, uh, you know, it's fixing gas pricing, that's not like the social layer doesn't have to like signal super strong. Mm -hmm. uh, but this, because it's, it's, it's not a hard fork, right? It's a deployment of a code and, and, and pointing to a, a code in this layer. Um, so there's a little bit more opportunity for um, 
confusion mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. other strange issues that might arise there. So the, the BLS uh, blocker may be news to some folks who are listening to this and, and watching to this, uh, w- watching this. And, but, but let's take kind of the happy path. So audits done in like two weeks. Um, Bison Trails, who's a, a staking company in the space, they're you know like doing stuff with ETH2. They wrote a post that said, we expect the deposit smart contract and more exact dates to be released sometime in the next two weeks. They, they put this post out this week. Uh, we still expect for mainnet to launch in mid to late November. Um, I guess, you know, the question to you, Danny, is when deposit contract? Let's take the happy path where BLS uh, goes well, the audits come back, everything's clean. What dates yeah, are we I mean, looking at? Happy path is a couple of weeks um, and a minimum genesis date in 2020. Very cool. Wow. All right. Ah. And we've got some, we've got <laughs> we've got some holidays to navigate too. Is that mm-hmm. on folks' minds? Mm-hmm. Um, to a certain extent, like yes, but it, like so we have we have some uh, some ability to select with uh, this parameter called min min genesis date, right? Um, and that is like a, a Unix timestamp uh, that is the earliest genesis can happen if a minimum number of deposits are hit. Um, and so there's a little bit like if we assume optimistically that like deposits come in and we hit we hit it, no problem. Um, then like we do kind of get to select a date um, and that would probably try to avoid any uh, major holidays. But if we don't hit those numbers, then um, genesis date, genesis time is like totally up, up in the wind. Um, and uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully that's not what I have to tell my wife uh, that we're doing on Christmas morning or something like that. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I take that back. I think she would accept it as like a, a pretty reasonable gift. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, okay. So, um, you know, the interesting thing about that, I think is like, this is going to be probably a light holiday year for a lot of people too anyway. Right. So, um, at least with respect to travel. So maybe not all bad news if that happens. Here's a a question from somebody in the community is asking to, to something you just sort of addressed, Danny, how fast you guys think the deposit contract will hit 500,000 ETH and maybe just give some background onto why that, uh, why that 500 K ETH is an important number. Great. Uh, so I'll do the background first. Um, so essentially, that is the minimum amount that can uh, kick off the chain. If more deposits happen before that minimum genesis time, uh, it can be kicked off with a higher amount. Um, initially, this number was put at two million. Um, to find the balance between being able to bootstrap the chain, but not have like a whale control the entire thing. Um, obviously. There are people with 500,000 ETH. There aren't an incredible amount of people with 500,000 ETH, uh, but there are players that could potentially game that. And so the other the other balance between having an, enough ETH to kick it off and be in a, kind of in a secure zone uh, is to, in these early phase of ETH2, um, there are there are risks that wouldn't necessarily exist in say two years time. Um, there is kind of this unknown uh, lockup, which as ETH1 gets integrated into ETH2, um, you are then able to liquidate uh, your validating ETH. Uh, but until then, you're kind of like 
you're in it to win it. You're, you're, you're a validator and you can exit, but then your ETH is, is sitting um, kind of in limbo. And we don't um, have so a date on when that happens. So it's kind of an unknown variable, right? Right. Right. So we do expect like a lower, much lower participation early on and much higher reward than say in two years where um, I, I don't know, say in some amount of time where the system is hardened, uh, the system is hardened, so there's less technical risk and uh, there's uh, easier paths for liquidity. Um, so we do expect like there to be some amount of barrier to everyone participating with all their ETH, right? Um, and so given that, um, the low 500,000 um, is kind of like in the event that it is not incredibly enticing to be uh, one of the bootstrap validators, um, it's definitely an achievable number. Um, and so it's, it's <clears throat> it would be in a, a much lower security environment. Um, obviously ETH is worth much more than it was uh, maybe when some of these decisions were made and ETH is worth like $90. Um, and so 500,000 isn't like a crazy low security environment, but um, it's really kind of finding the balance between what is the minimum that we can really expect in this uh, high risk phase um, balanced with what's the minimum we can get away with in terms of security to, to kick this thing off. Like and obviously 20,000 ETH is not a, not a sufficient number, um, yeah. but it's, it's a little bit of guesswork um, because of a lot of the unknowns in, in terms of the incentives and who's going to show up on day one. I guess, you know, to throw some numbers out here. So I, I don't have the calculator in front of me, but if, if you've got 500, if there's 500,000 ETH in there, like rewards are going to be a lot higher. So we're talking definitely double digits, right? Maybe upwards close to like 20% ish range. Yeah, yeah. I just put this in that EIP 2982. So let's check it out. Yeah. It's like 23 and a half percent. Okay, um, is and the 23.5% ETH denominated, which is important, not dollar denominated. Yes. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, who... Like, oh, I, I, finish that sentence, Danny. I know where you're yeah, going. Yeah, do it, do it. <laughs> who knows who denominates an ETH? Bankless well, no, Nation no, does. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I didn't mean... Do, I just, like, in terms of dollar amount, like, what is that even... like? Oh, yeah, yeah. It changes Absolutely. every uh -huh. fucking... Second. Well, like, okay, but here's... So, so here's what's interesting. So 23% on the... If it's close to 500K, right? So... And that would be sort of threshold to booting this up. We have, uh, so, you know, uh, 500K Ether right now price is what, 410-ish ETH price? Mm -hmm. So that would be like $200 million parked in the staking contract, basically. We have 8.9 million ETH locked in DeFi. That's like close to, um, how much is that? It's like 8%, 8.5%. It's eight percent. percent and that is billions of dollars. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, we've got billions of dollars locked in DeFi. And the ETH in DeFi is making like, I don't know, 2 3%. Yeah, um, not even that. I, just, well, I, thought, I thought you could make like 10,000%. <laughs> well, that, that was this summer. And that, you know, yeah. that didn't last too long. And that's on your stable coins, not on your Ether, not on your yeah. Ether assets. You don't get, ETH denominated returns are the thing. So um, I don't know. If we look at DeFi history, uh, at least for me, it feels pretty confident that... Mm -hmm. Are we going to have people stake ETH in ETH2 for 23% ETH denominated gains? There's definitely going to be a subsection. I feel like we're going yeah, to easily cross yeah. that threshold, but it it's is guesswork. Because the the risks, the risks, like smart contract risk is high, right? And especially when you're participating in a new system. And there are risks uh, in ETH2, right? Like, so 
that's not just a free, you, you don't just get a free 23%. Uh, you have to run your node. There are like technical attack risks. There are all, all sorts of stuff. Um, and so the, and, and early on, there's just more unknowns about like, how stable this thing is, which clients are the best to use and that kind of stuff. So like that number accounts for uh, additional risks. Um, but in the long term, you know, when say eight, 10 million ETH is in this thing, um, as we expect in the long term, uh, there's, there's going to be a lot fewer risks uh, because this system will have existed in production. Um, and because uh, a lot of these, like the clients, I think will be much more hardened by then. Uh, and liquidity, uh, much more easier access to liquidity exists, uh, you expect a, a much lower return. Uh, so it might look eventually like those meager DeFi returns. But uh, <laughs> but then it'll be much more of a risk-free type of, or low risk lower, relative yeah. to those DeFi. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really nice property that I'm not sure folks are aware of. It feels, mm -hmm. uh, feels very scalable on that. So Danny, as this deposit contract gets up and running, I'm, I'm seeing kind of uh, different parties that uh, are relevant here. Uh, there seems to be like, you know, people that are, are going to stake on day one, no matter what. And perhaps these people are, are long time like Ethereum people that probably like had, you know, like perhaps even participated in the Genesis sale. Uh, I would imagine Vitalik would be part of this group. Uh, and then there's the, the group of people that I think are just going to throw a few ETH in, just a, a small percentage of their total uh, value into the deposit contract. And then there's going to be people that, that do nothing. Uh, is that kind of how you see this stratification? And also if somebody just doesn't want really to do anything, do they have to do anything at all ever? Right. Um, so, I mean, that's a reasonable way to think of the stratification. I mean, there's people that uh, it just, it depends on your stack, obviously. Uh, you know, I don't expect most people to go all in on their stack, regardless of the quantity. You know, if you have 128 ETH, you might run a validator. If you have 128,000 ETH, you might run, you know, a thousand validators. Uh, but I, I don't, so someone's going all in obviously someone's like been waiting for this for for five years and is, <laughs> is like gonna drop their entire stack in it and like it is it has no intention of selling any of their ETH for the next 10 years and it's like i'm all in but i think you're gonna see much more of the people in that middle ground where like you begin to experiment uh you throw in a couple of validators um and get your toes wet and kind of see how the system evolves see how rates evolve see how participation evolves um and then potentially uh go in more um, and that's that's kind of on the and on the individual basis, but there's also there's a lot of other like com complicating factors to to uh, this engagement of you. You mentioned Bison Trails. There's a number of these like staking providers and institutional players, um, which is good. I mean, there's a, there's a demand for this stuff, uh, so I'd rather there be a ton of them, and it seems like there's going to be a ton of them rather than just like one or two. Uh, but some people might choose rather than to um, participate. Uh, at home, uh, might participate in one of these like larger pools. Um, or, you know, if you don't have 32 ETH, you might choose to participate in one of these pools with um, uh, a smaller denomination. Um, and then, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's the range of that. And then the, what was, your second question was, uh, what if people, people that don't really care to stake then just want to get yeah, onto yeah. ETH too? How does and that, that, that goes back to like one of the early questions we talked about and like this, uh, 
what ETH1 is, is the existing Ethereum chain, the state and the transactions and kind of like the continuation of that. Um, and the plan is that uh, this, this chain is governed, that state is governed by proof of work. Um, and at some point in the future, there'll be a hot swap of the consensus from proof of work to this beacon chain uh, proof of stake and things will just be uninterrupted. Your, your, uh, your applications, your contracts and your ETH will just exist in this new environment. Um, and so, Yes. If you don't want to do anything, don't do anything. Um, honestly, like phase zero, honestly, this like bootstrapping of consensus is for stakers. It's for people that want to get involved. Um, it's, you know, obviously like there are stakers, there are DAP developers, there are community members and like the people kind of span the gamut. But like, if you're not interested in being a staker, then like just let it, let it bootstrap, let it go um, and enjoy the fruits of it um, in due time. This is going to be pretty historic, though. I mean, this is the first time a live, kind of a live network is attempting to switch over from proof of work to proof of stake. I've called this like economically, if like if we think ETH is money, is a monetary asset, monetary type asset. This is almost like a, um, a initial bond offering for the Ethereum you know nation because you're able to put that monetary asset in a bond, stake it, and receive some sort of reward. And all of this is happening before our eyes live. It's going to be. I think one of the most fascinating economic experiments, um, you know, maybe in history. Ever, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, here's a reader question, though. So I think you know, back in 2017, we we faced um, kind of a, a couple of years of what felt like uh, serenity delays, ETH2 delays. The reader asks, or the watcher uh, is asking, what's the most likely reason why ETH2 effort continues to, to feel like it gets stalled or delayed. Like, why has that been happening? And like, how do we know it's not going to happen again, either at this phase zero or, or maybe even like phase one? Because like we get phase zero, but still phase one and phase 1.5 can until we can start doing things with it. Why the delays? Right. Um, so this problem, the set of problems um, has moved from the abstract to the concrete. Um, over the course of many years. Um, this research effort, the abstract, uh, has been ongoing since before the launch of Ethereum mainnet um, and continued for many years. Um, it had uh, many false starts. It had meandering paths. Um, and it took a long time to bring the fundamental research into a concrete reality. Um, that even at the end of 2017 was still happening. Um, some of the, fun, the fundamental research driving the core of the proof of stake and the core of the sharding was still really getting out the door. Um, at that point, we were also beginning development um, and there was optim optimism uh, that um, all the, the, the hard problems were solved. Um, but it wasn't really until this mid 2018 shift where the abstract firmly began moving into the concrete. Um, but moving into the concrete first had to move into specifications. Um, and specifications took us a long time because these things are complicated. Um, and so there was optimism that the early specifications were kind of where we needed to be um, and that implementation could uh, quickly follow. Uh, the specification time took um, more into firmly into the 20, 2019 range um, and thus, really the implementations uh, were getting started and expertise, engineering expertise in this domain was being built, uh, but we weren't at the point in which this stuff could be shipped. 
um, really once these specifications solidified um, and implementations could really bite in and dig in um, in mid 2019 uh, did the stuff concretely begin to move out the door. Um, and what we've seen is um, client engineering teams first and foremost understand this stuff and figure out how to build and manage it. Um, it's one thing to write it down theoretically. It's another to actually create sophisticated systems to do so. Um, and what we do have now are sophisticated systems that can handle proof of stake and handle sharding. Um, and these, <clears throat> that's what's being kind of finally battle tested and moving into production either this year. Um, so there's a couple of things there. There's the, the abstract of like actually just abstractly, can we solve these research problems? There's writing specs down. And then there's like the actual building of uh, production systems. Um, I would claim that on the abstract side, on the research side, um, there are not a lot of unknowns. Um, we do have very firm grasp on uh, the reality of the systems that we're trying to build. Um, and on the specification side, uh, we do have clear paths uh, to production grade specifications on phase one, phase 1.5. Um, this stuff is still a bit in flux, uh, but is in a place where we're kind of hardening and refining rather than coming up with the basics. Um, we've also gotten better at writing specifications. Uh, we have like a framework of how we write specifications. We have like standard ways to write these things and standard ways to test and, and, and validate what we're writing. Um, so those two, the research stuff is not a big blocker. Uh, specifications is ongoing, um, but we're in a pretty good place. And on the on the actual engineering side, um, engineering phase one and engineering phase 1.5, it's hard. Like plain and simple, uh, this stuff is hard. Uh, any, any amount of work and any amount of iteration is hard. But the foundation, um, the foundation of these systems and the foundation of these engineers and these teams um, is laid. And so when you're talking about expanding, say the role of what a validator does, uh, which happens in phase one. They have additional duties, not just the beacon chain, but to these shard chains. Um, this is an extension of uh, what is already robust software. There's already like generally frameworks for how to deal with validators, how to kind of shuffle them around, how to have different duties and store what they're doing and manage caches and shuffling all sorts of stuff. So a lot of the fundamental problems are solved. It's really extending the ability of, of these systems. Um, and so I will say this time and time again, this stuff is hard. And like fundamentally, like that's, that's the answer. That's why uh, this, that's why there are delays. Uh, this stuff is hard. It's never been done before. Um, but we, uh, the researchers, uh, the developers, the testers, the everyone kind of involved in the system are much better positioned to move um, professionally and to move quickly um, on sub subsequent phases. And so, yes, there is complexity. Yes, I will not give you a timeline, uh, but, um, the ability to extend these systems and the ability of the engineers and the teams, um, you know, is up there. Awesome. Thanks for that, Danny. Well, one question that we have coming in from the YouTube is, uh, what would you like to see from the client teams? Uh, you mentioned loose ends are being tied up. One thing personally I'd like to see is the new client switching schema. I actually don't know what that is. Maybe you could uh, help uh, elaborate on that. Right. So one thing, um, I'm going to beat the drum on client diversity all day, every day. Um, I think that we have a little bit unhealthy distribution. Uh, the prison team has been around for, uh, for longer than any other team, and they've had public test nets for much longer than the other team. And so I think a lot of the community is kind of anchored on this client because they're just familiar with it. And it's a good client. Uh, but 
there are other very excellent clients. Um, and so what we saw in Madasha was we saw early in Madasha, we saw a critical error um, with how Prism was handling time, uh, which caused like some madness. Uh, it, it also illuminated us to the fact that like Prism was probably 70 plus percent of the network. Um, and during that, uh, we could have seen a much quicker resolution of this error if validators were able to cleanly, simply and securely uh, swap clients. Um, but there actually was not like a, a standard in place for me that'll cleanly do that. And actually if I naively just swap my client uh, due to the nature of the timing error on the Prism client, I might actually have been uh, liable to be slashed um, if I didn't like port the information of my previous messages to this new client. And so one of the great things, there's a lot that came out of that Madasha incident. Um, all, I think all clients are like 10 times better since that incident because they got to deal with like a crazy stressful forking scenario with like 10% of the network that remained live. Um, so that's good, good in and of itself. But another thing that came out of it was there's this... Um, validator database like interchange format i don't essentially if i'm running uh prism i can go you know export uh validator db um and then i have like this file and then if i want to run lighthouse or nimbus or teku um i can just go import validator db import keys or like import import my keys and i'll say do you have an existing db or something and you give them the file i don't know what the ux around it is but um this standard exists so that i can safely um, and easily kind of port between, between clients. Um, and so that's, that's what they were mentioning there. Um, and this, um, there is a standard, uh, there is a standard that is implemented. I know by Lighthouse and I believe by Teku and maybe by, uh, Prism and the standard, uh, is being prepped to be, you know, an EIP ERC. Um, and so that's, that's one of the kind of things, like when I say loose ends that are being tied up, um, so that, uh, these, you know, people not only can run their clients, but in exceptional scenarios can, can run and manage their clients. Um, another thing that I, it's kind of funny. It's like, um, I think Teku like recently merged a PR that actually lets you submit exits, right? Like that's, that's like the tail end of the validation process and like, not something we're like consider like that you, um, like when you're when you're imagining a test net you're usually like genesis and like run stably um but because of that you know they had this like feature just kind of like hanging in an issue um of actually being able to submit an exit you know and so that's that's something that like when i say loose ends uh that's not a complex feature it's just sign a message and broadcast it uh but it didn't exist um and so that's that's the kind of stuff um in addition to the final hardening and kind of security preparations that are happening one thing I, I want to go, go back to the the switching the the client switching uh, schema uh, scheme yeah. I guess uh, the historically we've had instances in Ethereum 1.0 where one client got DDoSed right and so it was this was the Shanghai attacks way back when yeah. and if and you know there was made basically if I'm remembering correctly there's basically just two clients at the time and one client went down. And the reason why Ethereum didn't go down was because the other side of Ethereum, which was the, uh, uh, what was the other client that, that well, there was parody and Geth and parody I think they actually Geth. both independently got attacked, but at different times, at different times. Right. And so like they said, one was the backstop for the other. And what you're talking about with these switching schema, 
uh, switching validators in Ethereum 2.0 is that we're make, we're find, trying to find a way to like just uh, switch at the press of a button, right? And so right. for people that's trying to attack Ethereum, it's like playing whack-a-mole because what these clients are trying to do is they're trying to make such an easy way to switch on to a new uh, client that may not be succumbing to whatever attack you're trying to have. So it's just about producing anti-fragility. This is all correct, right? Right, right. And, and some of this we get just by being in a multi-client paradigm without active switching, right? So if um, a client that is one third of the network or say, say a client's like 25% of the network and it gets attacked and everyone gets take down, taken down, uh, the chain can still be built and it actually can still be finalized. Now take a client that's 50% of the network, uh, the chain can still be built if that client is taken off, but it, it, can't, it can't finalize. So it can still provide liveness and some quality of service, but it, it can't provide, provide that uh, crypto economic finality um, that we would desire. Um, and so that's, that's another component. Like, so if there's a 50% client taken off and there's not a good way to switch, then we're kind of in this like limbo state where we're not finalizing. And so this adds additional um, ability to um, rectify scenarios. And personally, you know, if you're a, if you're a validator and you just want, you want good uptime, like if you have issues with a client, you want to be able to switch regardless of whether there's, there's an attack. Um, and so this just kind of provides that baseline, um, ability to, to be able to manage and kind of control your own destiny. And that, that's, that's I kind of alluded to the fact that I think that Prism has too high of a community uh, share right now uh, because um, we, have, we have four clients, um, four very viable clients that are, that are going to mainnet. We have an additional client, Lodestar, with a JavaScript client. They're awesome. Uh, they bring incredible JavaScript tooling, but they're not quite ready for mainnet. Um, and these four clients, um, if we had say like every client had 20 to 30% of the network, um, then we'd have like this kind of built-in redundancy where if a client goes down, uh, the liveness remains, uh, the, the finality remains live. Um, whereas if we have a client that has like a huge percentage of the network, there's, they just, it embodies like a, a huge amount of uh, much more risk for both the users, uh, the, the, the validators and kind of their profits um, as well as um, this finality mechanism of, uh, of the protocol. So again, like being able to switch easier helps, um, in the event that a majority client has issues. Um, but I'd also love to see uh, a better distribution in general. Very you know, cool. We, and we maybe, have, maybe, we have four viable clients. So like use them. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll see some of that, uh, particularly when we get to, you know, production mainnet and real money is at stake and people want some redundancy against one uh, client outage. So let's hope for that. Here's another viewer question. So after phase zero, how long until phase one and two? And maybe let me just slip uh, phase like 1.5 in right. there conceptually, realizing this is all part of serenity. Uh, of yeah, course, yeah. but uh, what about these other phases? So ha give us happy path, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm um, <clears throat> these client teams. Uh, they have uh, they're they're much larger than they were a year ago. Uh, they've been encouraged to kind of like hire and build up the expertise, uh, but they generally have like some like very expert resources that the leads um, that are driving a lot. Uh, the goal and the intention is to get phaser out the door um, and shift a lot of these expert resources to sprint on phase one. Um, it's been very difficult to prioritize uh, the development of phase one by these client teams while they have uh, the impending uh, launch of phase zero. Uh, but phase zero will go in more into an iterative uh, maintenance mode uh, for these clients um, and the expert resources will spend uh, day and night working on uh, shipping phase one. 
Um, I think that it's realistic to see that next year, uh, but I need uh, these engineers to dig in come you know January 3rd uh, and begin to flesh it out. Again, a lot of the core of this system um, and a lot of the complexity of the system is um, the managing of this beacon chain of you know hundred thousand hundreds of thousands of validators and consensus entities and caching and um, databases and all sorts of stuff and a lot of that is in place um, and a lot of what phase one is, is kind of an extension of a lot of those basic building blocks so um, I'm pretty confident that uh, you know we'll get significant kind of basis in place early next year and test nets going uh, but there's a lot of unknowns um, and so. So looking at that, so uh, phase zero builds the brain, right? So we've got this whole body that is Ethereum. It's got its own separate brain. Now we're building another brain over here, but it doesn't have a body yet, right? So it's in kind of this lab. And then phase zero launches with, you know, and we're building the brain, which is kind of the consensus engine, right? What additional benefits do we get with phase one? We had Vitalik on the podcast and he was talking about, hey, it's kind of like a um, sharded data availability layer, yeah. right? for us. So are there any wins there? And then uh, phase 1.5, it's it's kind of my impression that that's the point at which we can we can delete the other brain and we can merge the body right. and like the the, right. the the bodies together into one thing. But what are the wins for phase one? Yeah. So um, so the goal, one of the primary goals is to migrate uh, the existing Ethereum chain from proof of work to proof of stake. Um, in the meantime, while this proof of stake mechanism is being bootstrapped, uh, and built and vetted in production and kind of iterated on, um, we will also extend that proof of stake mechanism to come to consensus on a lot of data. Um, it's sharded data uh, and provide a whole host of um, extended data, layer one data availability capabilities. Essentially, um, uh, <clears throat> we expect this consensus mechanism to be able to come to consensus on anywhere from like one, one to four megabytes of, sec of data uh, per second. And um, that's what phase one is, is taking that consensus um, and, uh, figure, and getting it to come to consensus on a lot of data. And data is kind of this weird thing where like, uh, I'm aware of how important layer one data can be to uh, applications and things, but I think maybe the broader community is just beginning to kind of bite into what layer one data even means and what it, what it, what it can uh, do for us. Um, and I, I distinguish data from, data and computation. So like layer one data in phase one uh, doesn't really have like a layer one meaning. It's just the ability for the consensus system to like make strong crypto economic claims that this data exists and is available. Um, so what does data do for us if we don't have computation? Well, I think first, first and foremost, um, what we expect it to be used for is, uh, is rollups, uh, which is like one of the main uh, scalability avenues that uh, Ethereum wants to take in the short term, but also probably the medium and long term, um, where the amount of layer one data uh, dictates how much these systems can scale. Um, I think you can get a couple of order of magnitude with just the data of the single Ethereum blockchain today, uh, but with you know 100x that uh, in a sharded solution, we can take those two or two orders of magnitude and multiply them by another couple, um, and get some pretty incredible scaling. Um, but another interesting thing is like, what is what is layer one data? What what can we do with it? You know, if we don't put computation on it, I don't know. Like there might be all sorts of crazy stuff. Like just having this extended capability, one I think is going to provide us like quite a bit of scaling through rollups, but 
Um, there's all pr probably all sorts of decentralized applications and things that we haven't even thought of that um, all of the innovators out there um, and all the people that like always want to play with the new gadgets um, are going to take and extend. Um, and so layer one data, we expect to just be an asset in and of itself. Um, and so phase one, even though the existing uh, proof of work chain, what we call ETH1, isn't integrated back into the system, um, it can learn about this system uh, through a light client on ETH1 and have access to make proofs about this data availability layer. And so um, all of these roll-up mechanisms that are um, in production today and kind of on the verge of being in production in, in the next quarter or so um, can not only leverage the layer one data of the existing Ethereum chain, but this highly scalable data layer of um, kind of the beacon chain system. And so uh, we do expect there to be some pretty major gains and expect this to be a big, pretty big asset to the community at that phase. Um, and then subsequently, um, we'll have the integration of uh, the existing Ethereum chain into this proof of state consensus um, for a little bit more native access to that data layer. All right. So um, we, we've gone through all, kind of all the phases, right? So we're, again, happy path, maybe uh, it looks like happy path says that the, the, uh, contract will ship and staking will ship this quarter. Uh, and then happy path would maybe say phase one ships next year. I think that maybe the, the last question, the one to wrap on, uh, Danny is when will the old brain die? When will we finally be rid of proof of work for good? Give us another happy path on that because that would make me very happy. <laughs> uh, when it's ready. <laughs> um, there is, so there's been a lot of work done on this. Um, Mikhail from TXRX at Consensus and Guillaume from the Geth team um, at uh, the Ethereum Foundation have worked on a, uh, a prototype of the basic, uh, the merge, the beacon chain controlling the consensus of existing Ethereum. Um, it's great because it reuses uh, most of the software, it's sophisticated software, beth one Geth, et cetera. Um, and it reuses the same uh, public interfaces. And so you can take existing wallets and stuff and just interact with Ethereum, but in this new environment. Uh, so we like used MetaMask to send transactions to, um, you know, an Ethereum chain controlled by the beacon chain. Very cool. Um, in addition to that, um, there's now, there were probably like three or four of us uh, built working on this merge. Um, and now there's upwards of like 10 people. Um, there's a lot of different things to think through like uh, shard data fee markets, um, actually how you handle security at the point of merge, you know, when uh, the proof of work uh, dies and the proof of stake takes control, you know, at this inflection point, like what are the things to think through? Uh, we're currently prototyping that inflection point. Um, and a number of other things, like at that point, you have uh, the ability for native validator withdrawals um, and more native deposits. Um, and so figuring out the mechanisms of uh, withdrawing and withdrawing to contracts and all that kind of stuff. Um, that stuff is all in the works and that stuff is all very independent of this phase one development um, and is happening in parallel and kind of picking up steam. Um, so I think that by mid next year, uh, we will have like pretty robust prototypes and beginning to have pretty robust specifications of the different uh, dimensions of this problem. Um, and although I think client teams will be uh, digging very deeply into phase one at that point, um, we'll be ready to really plan and begin for uh, serious planning of, of the merge. Um, so, you know, take it, take it, take it for what it, what it is. I, I like, 
I have like, we all have like an optimal path and like, I probably have a better understanding of some of the problems at hand than others. Uh, but these are deep and complex problems. Um, and there's a lot of different moving parts. Um, and I don't want to, uh, I don't, I don't want to put engineering teams in the position of having an arbitrary deadline that I happen to say on a podcast. So I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> that is completely fair. Uh, thanks. Thanks a lot, Danny. Yeah, Danny, we want to give a big tip of the hat to spearheading this entire entire effort. So, you know, th- thank you for, for everything that you have done and, and, you know, pushing the boulder up the hill uh, so far. Uh, and well, so, go ahead. Thank you. I get the chance to talk about it and I get the chance to work with kind of in the middle of a lot of it, but mm-hmm. like tipping my hat to uh, all of the incredible researchers at, Ethere- at the Ethereum Foundation and elsewhere um, and like the like, the engineering talent on this project is, is unbelievable. Um, and they're really like the, the unsung heroes of this process. So shout out to them. Yeah, should definitely shout out to them. Danny, if there's one thing that the Bankless Nation could help with this effort, what would it be? What, what could uh, listeners and viewers do to, to make sure that, you know, Ethereum 2.0 comes alive in the way that we want it to? I mean, phase zero is for stakers. Um, if you are planning on getting involved, uh, get involved today. Um, check out the eStaker community, uh, dig deep, run some software, run some non-majority client software, help yourself and help the network uh, by using a diversity of software. Um, so, I mean, that, that's that's the big shout out. Um, if you're planning on staking and I mean, otherwise, if you're just in the Ethereum community or you're building dApps, like keep doing what you're doing. Um, we're trying to make a better future for you but like there's a lot of incredible shit going on today so like if that's your thing just stay heads down and keep making ethereum awesome absolutely yeah okay and if you guys are interested in doing that i would actually super recommend the eth online global event that's tomorrow there's going to be a talk about uh staking for beginners uh at uh, 17 edt or 1700 hours edt whenever that time zone is uh you can check it out at ethglobal.online there's a schedule there uh, a bunch of other stuff too as well such as eip 1559 and if you're interested in a lot of the content that danny was talking about just now you're probably going to be interested with all that content going on there so learning more that would be a great resource danny thanks so much for for this ama really appreciate your time thank you it's my pleasure Talk to you all soon. Cheers. Take care, Danny. Thanks a lot. <laughs>